The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm Vice President for Public Affairs at Pepperdine University. I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, Dean of the Grazadillo School of Business and Management. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're excited for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series to continue today with Dan Sanders, who's one of our own. Absolutely. He graduated from our President's and Key Executive MBA program, so we are thrilled to have Dan with us. He is President of Southern California's Albertsons Division and uh, a very challenging industry, so it'll be interesting to hear from Dan. Well, we look forward to this conversation. Let me invite our listeners then to sit back and relax and to enjoy this conversation with Dan Sanders. I'd like to welcome everybody to our podcast with Dan Sanders. Dan is uh, a seasoned executive in the food industry and supermarket sector. He's worked for both for-profit and and or for private as well as public firms in that area. Uh, he has a background as a United States Air Force pilot, and most importantly, he's an alumnus of Pepperdine University and our President's and Key Executive MBA program. So, Dan, it's uh, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you very much. Well, we uh, always like to get started on these podcasts with our audience to give them a bit of a sense of your background. So I gave a little introduction, but can you speak a little bit to kind of your path to where you are today and kind of maybe some of the major transitions in your career that have been interesting for you? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, first of all, I uh, graduated from Lubbock Christian University Mm -hmm. back in 1981, and uh, I entered the Air Force right out of uh, college. Uh, had a passion for flying and uh, was caught up in the uh, patriotism. Ronald Reagan was uh, coming in as our commander-in-chief and president and uh, had a fabulous career uh, flying in the military. I met a lot of great people, learned a lot about leadership. You know, the military focuses uh, first and foremost on leadership and on training. And so at a relatively young age, had an opportunity to be exposed to uh, fantastic responsibilities and uh, opportunity to travel and see the world. And so um, a great experience there. Stayed in, in the active duty military until after the first Gulf War. Uh, and then for about two years after that, um, until I left active duty uh, to enter business. And my first entry into business was with a family-owned supermarket chain in West Texas. And a fabulous uh, family. Uh, they were kind enough to really bring me into uh, their inner circle started off in the training and HR department, not surprisingly, having come from the military. Uh, But then over time, worked my way through different uh, positions um, in advertising and then in sales and merchandising and then operations. And uh, spent about four years uh, working with the family uh, with United Supermarkets. And then it dawned on me uh, at about that time, as my children are starting to uh, grow older and um, starting to think about their future, it dawned on me that really um, I wanted an opportunity to build some wealth. I wanted an opportunity to create for my children mm-hmm. uh, blessings that uh, I'd had in my life. And so I decided to um, leave the family-owned business and uh, join up with a business partner in an entrepreneurial mm-hmm. venture. 
And that turned out to be um, just a fabulous experience. You know, entrepreneurial ventures are quite often it's the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> That's for sure. And um, But the learning was just fantastic. And uh, Galen Walters, uh, a mentor, uh, really helped school me in, in really entrepreneurialism. And so um, we had that opportunity uh, based out of Houston for uh, about seven years and then sold the company to private equity. And so I got a taste of what private equity was like uh, and, and the changes that take place when those types of transitions occur. Because up until that point, we had just grown the company out of cash flow. And so bringing on a financial partner uh, brought with it all sorts of other challenges. Right. Um, Opportunities and challenges, Absolutely. Right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and good friends all to this day. But uh, stayed there uh, until 2003 and then was asked by this same family-owned supermarket chain to come back initially as the chief marketing officer and then shortly thereafter to uh, take the reins as the CEO. And again, um, stepping back into uh, that family company with uh, seven years of entrepreneurial experience uh, really helped me a great deal. And I stayed there for about seven years and um, felt like at that time that, you know, it was uh, appropriate to see what other challenges might be there in my professional career. And I had a real interest in working for a publicly traded mm -hmm. company. I had this experience uh, working in the government. I had this experience you know, working with a family-owned company and then the entrepreneurial experience and a touch of private equity. But I really wanted to see what it was like to work in a publicly traded company. And so uh, that's uh, when I moved to Super Value and initially started as a president for Acme Markets uh, based in Pennsylvania, a wonderful 120-year-old company. And then um, after a couple of years in a turnaround there with Acme Markets, I was asked to come to Southern California with Albertsons. And uh, I've spent about the last 10 months working on a turnaround here. And through this process, uh, SuperValue decided to, um, to sell both of these companies and some others. And so, you know, it's been a really interesting career, um, very different than most people, uh, certainly different than my colleagues in the food industry. But um, it's been very gratifying, and uh, it's been very meaningful. You've been in a lot of different kinds of companies, even though they're all in the same industry. Uh, and I, I certainly know a lot of the people that are listening, some of them may be in privately held family-owned businesses, or they some are obviously a lot would be in public companies. What did you learn different in those two in terms of from a leadership perspective? What were some of the differences, and what did you learn about yourself as a leader being in those two different very kinds of governance structures? Well, certainly in the smaller organizations that were family-owned or even to some extent private equity-driven, um, the focus tended to be um, on creating a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true, at least in the food industry. One could argue maybe in other industries as well that so much of our innovation and so much of the creativity tends to come from um, smaller organizations. They just tend to have uh, agility and perhaps uh, the sort of um, authority to you know, take chances. And in some cases, you, you do it because it's your only way to create some advantage against a larger uh, competitor. Um, so you know, being a part of a smaller organization tended to be uh, all about driving the top line with uh, creative services or products and so forth. When I joined the publicly traded um, company, um, it became much more complicated because now there were more stakeholders in addition to just shareholders that had to be um, satisfied. And as a result, um, of course, the larger the organization, then it became, frankly, more finance-driven. 
And like so many publicly traded companies, that constant pressure, you know, from quarter to quarter uh, certainly had a bearing on decision making and, and frankly made it much more challenging to um, affect the kind of change that I'd hoped to make. Now, my understanding is when you were in West Texas with that family-owned business, you were a bit of a media celebrity. Is that true? I think you did some of the ads for the chain out there. Well, I did. That's because I was so cheap. I didn't <laughs> want to have to pay for the talent and the residuals, right? So There's something to be said for that. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, looking back on it, uh, you might have to have an appreciation for West Texas right. to know what might uh, succeed there. but. You know, the family at that time felt so strongly about culture mm -hmm. and about taking care of the community. And even in Lubbock, Texas, which is the home base for United Supermarkets, the fact that this wonderful family contributed $10 million to, to build the United Spirit Arena mm -hmm. was just a reflection of how sincere they were about um, really serving and enriching the lives of the people that they served in their various markets. So the fact that, you know, a CEO could go on camera and say, we're going to do this, that, or the other thing, and it be taken genuinely. Um, uh, perhaps there's only a few markets where that's possible, but I had a chance to take advantage of it. Well, you have a very genuine personality, so I'm sure it played well in West uh, I Texas. I appreciate that. So. Well, in a couple of the, the situations that you described, uh, you were really brought in to help turn around mm -hmm. an organization. That takes a different set of leadership skills as well. So yeah. uh, what would be some of your tips for people that are in that kind of a situation and what they need to do as a leader that might be different if you're in a you know, a, a growing market where turnaround's not important, but you're really all about growth and focus going forward. But what, from a leadership perspective, is important in a turnaround? Well, I don't think... Um Turnarounds are for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, right. They require... <laughs> you have to be a hardy soul. They, they, they require a pretty thick skin. Yeah. And, you know, my experience in turnarounds, and for whatever reason, it seems I've sort of gravitated to these types of things, but, you know, the first thing that you have to do is, is recognize that it, we're way beyond in these turnarounds, and in some cases where it's really serious, way, way beyond, but way beyond choosing between the good choice and the bad choice, mm -hmm. right? Typically in a turnaround, you're having to make difficult decisions that are really choosing between the bad and, let's say, the really bad. Right. And the first order of business in turnarounds is, to, is, frankly, is to determine how much time do we really have, because we can all come up with grand plans on how we'd like to see a particular um, supermarket chain, in my case, um, go to market. But the question is, do we have enough time to affect that change? Right. And so, depending on the nature of the turnaround, you know, difficult decisions have to be made. And quite often, before you can unveil a vision and start pursuing competitive advantage, you have to stabilize the organization before you can embark on those types of activities. It's kind of like being in triage mm -hmm. in a hospital room, right? There are things that are done in the emergency room that you might not necessarily want to do, but they have to be done in order to save the patient and stabilize the vitals. And so quite often that results in displacing people mm -hmm. from their livelihoods because in many cases what's happened is, is that the sales erosion has been so sudden or has occurred over a period of time and there's not, there's not been the necessary adjustment to align the workforce with the sales erosion. And so, you know, seen from the field, it's a very difficult pill to swallow. But seen from the boardroom, um, these are necessary decisions because you may have to displace a thousand folks in order to save 20,000 jobs. And that's not a good place to be, but when you're the leader, you carry that responsibility. And one of the things I've learned over my career is, is you, you can never delegate responsibility. You can delegate authority, 
but the responsibility is still yours and yours alone. And so the fact that when you go through one of these turnarounds, um, that there's going to be criticism, that's just um, the price of admission for being in the turnaround business. You've written a couple of books, Built to Serve and Equipped to Last, and uh, I believe it's in Built to Serve. You talk a lot about people and the focus on people, and so having to make those kinds of really tough decisions that oftentimes, especially in the service sure. industry, have such an impact on people. How do you sort of reconcile that or, uh, interest that you have in people and that care and concern you have for people with having to make those really tough choices mm -hmm. uh, about layoffs? Well, as I say, you know, the I'm, I'm a huge believer and a strong advocate and obviously on record yes. for championing uh, people first practices because my view is is that too often in business, we think that um, you know people first practices detract from performance when frankly uh, it's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. When we focus on our people and help them realize potential, the performance of the organization um, as a general rule is better than what it would be uh, if we hadn't done that. The problem is is that in turnarounds, before you can get to that type of activity, you have to stabilize the organization. Right. And so in terms of re reconciliation, um, to use your word, my view of it is to say, well, I have 20,000 people whose livelihoods are at risk here. I don't want um, people to lose their jobs. So what's the, what's the minimum amount that I have to um, displace in order to preserve the balance of uh, the, the workforce? And again, that's not, a, that's not choosing between the good and the bad. Right. That's choosing between the bad and the really bad. Absolutely. And so I, I fully um, respect the fact that if you're... You know, if you're one of those individuals that's impacted in a negative way, um, you have every right to be upset because you've lost your livelihood, it's disruptive, all sorts of things in life um, become harder. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you're the leader, um, you have to be courageous enough to understand that it's not a, you know, it's, it's not a contest to see who, who's best liked. It's really um, incumbent on the leader to make the kinds of decisions that um, serve the broader interest mm -hmm. of um, all of the stakeholders and not just um, one segment of the workforce. You use the term uh, uh, people practices. Or yes, people first people practices. People first practices. Yeah. Uh, what are some of your favorite people first practices? What kinds of things do you think are most important in organizations that indicate that you put people first? Well, the first thing that I have tried to do in, in organizations where I've had the privilege of leadership is to ensure that the onboarding process puts people first to begin with. You know, I've sat through my share of onboarding sessions in right. which, you know, some um, human resources professional has been asked to stand up and you know, read from a manual of the 20 ways in which you can get fired. Um, it's always been odd to me that that's how we bring people into organizations, right? Is we, My favorite was the hazardous materials video that we all had to watch. That, that, absolutely, right? Why am I watching this? So, so we have a tendency uh, from an HR perspective, um, we, too often we have a tendency to approach it from a compliance perspective. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a place for that, right. to be certain. But the first point I think we ought to make with all of our, um, our new hires is how thrilled we are that they're coming onto our organization and, and to make them feel welcomed. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, we, we thought enough of them to hire them into the organization. We ought to go the extra mile to make certain they understand what our vision is for mm -hmm. the company, uh, what our higher purpose is, to start connecting those dots uh, from the very beginning. And I think there's big opportunities for that in organizations across the country. 
A second thing that I think is um, merited with uh, you know, people first practices is recognizing um, from the very beginning that no job is unimportant. And by getting out into the field as a leader and acknowledging the often um, uh, hardworking uh, folks that don't make the headlines but are absolutely indispensable, uh, making those people feel um, appreciated is a huge step in um, this sort of people-first approach. At the end of the day, I've been on record as saying that the future of business, in my mind, isn't so much about price and profit as it is about choice and culture. I'm not saying that price and profit aren't important. Of course, I'm a capitalist. It is important. But the point is, is to say that, you know, if we focus on the choices um, and we focus on the culture that we develop in our organizations by putting people first, mm -hmm. that, in fact, our profitability and our other performance metrics will be better than what they would have been had we um, declined sort of focus in this way. I mentioned earlier the two books that you wrote. Uh, it's not like you had lots of time sitting around with nothing to do and decided to write books. What was it that motivated you to do that and to kind of share your leadership philosophy in the midst of all of the other things that you were doing with your life, both at work and at home? Well, what started uh, the whole process of, of book writing um, was the fact that when I was at United Supermarkets, where culture was so important because of this family um, emphasis, we were growing pretty rapidly. And uh, we were moving into new trade areas, in this case, Dallas-Fort Worth, which, of course, is a huge market uh, in terms of population. And it dawned on me one day that within two years, we were going to have more uh, new folks joining the organization than we had had uh, legacy folks. And that concerned me, because when you have that sort of rapid growth, the culture of the organization is, um, is really in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And so the thought occurred to me, well, maybe what we ought to be doing is, is we ought to be recording some of the things that we feel so strongly about. Um, and that's how the book came to be. Originally, it was going to be a training uh, module. But what happened was, um, as the project sort of unfolded, um, some of my colleagues, professional colleagues, said, you know, um, there are other independent grocers that would benefit from this same type of thinking. And as a result of that, um, the book uh, ended up being published by McGraw-Hill. And it's been a wonderful blessing because while there's certainly critics of the work that say, oh, Dan, you're too naive, and in a publicly traded company, you'd be fired in a heartbeat, the truth of the matter is, is there's a great many uh, business leaders across the world, not just in the United States, that desperately are seeking to implement this type of approach. And many are already doing it. And I think it's one of the things that um, I found great encouragement in. And certainly, you know, it was a labor of love. Um, it takes a lot of time. There's a certain vulnerability when you put mm -hmm. yourself in print like that. But at the end of the day, um, it's been a tremendous blessing. Well, you're an alumnus of Pepperdine, as I mentioned in your introduction. You went through our President's and Key Executive MBA program. Um, what advice would you give to up-and-coming MBAs or MBAs that are getting ready to graduate? You did it later in your career. Right. Many people do it much earlier in your career, so mm -hmm. there's certainly different reasons to do it. But what advice would you give people for how to get the most out of that educational experience and to get the most value out of it even after they've gone through the experience? Well, the PKE program is um, an exceptional program, and I think the other MBA programs have their own um, strengths as well. My advice to um, folks that are in these programs today is to really soak up um, just the, the, the knowledge, not only that's being shared with the professors, uh, but also with your colleagues. 
there's so much to learn there in terms of the network and how people approach problem solving and what, what kinds of issues uh, leaders in different industries are, are coping with. The biggest lesson from all of this sort of academic pursuit is to recognize that the future can be created, not just you know, endured. Um, and, and that's a powerful message of hope for anyone that's in school. Because when you go through an academic uh, module, or uh, whether it's uh, for credit or not, uh, any type of continuous learning, um, or if you're in a formal MBA program, one of the things you discover about yourself is that there's so much untapped capacity and there's so much opportunity in front of you that perhaps you didn't see before. And so it's a great opportunity for you to say, you know what, I can create a future for myself that I might not have seen previously. And that's why I think it's interesting that a lot of MBAs um, end up pursuing you know, their own entrepreneurial um, experience mm -hmm. because they sort of come into their own when they're in this uh, college experience. It's kind of a safe place to really sort of test your, you know, your views about business and your philosophy about life and uh, gives you the confidence to, uh, to, to go out and pursue something. And I think at the end of the day, uh, what I walked away from in business is that there's sort of two kinds of people in business. There are people that create money and there are people who make money. And you need both. Right. But there's something about MBA programs that sort of um, scratches the itch, if you will, when it comes to creating money, mm -hmm. whether it's jobs or whether it's services or products, but being able to take nothing and create something mm -hmm. is something our country and frankly the world needs desperately. And we, set, we still need those folks who are willing to fund those ideas and, and that are uh, prepared to make money on those ideas. But I think MBA students um, can do so much to advance that whole creation of jobs and services and products and in fact, um, really advance our entire business community. Well, that concept of creating the future, it's certainly something we hope we project in the MBA program. I think that's probably good insight for anybody at whatever point they are in Absolutely. their life, that they still have that opportunity to create their future regardless of, of where they are. Um, I know that you're a person with deeply held personal values and a deeply held personal faith. Um, and certainly some of that is expressed, I think, in the books that you wrote. But how do you kind of on a daily basis at work kind of live out those values and that faith in a way that kind of keeps you true to who you are in a centered kind of way, but also then allows you to be successful in an uh, ongoing business environment? I think it's a great question, and I think it's one that people of faith that are business leaders probably struggle with uh, on a regular basis. For me, you know, I've always appreciated the, the great John Wooden's uh, view of success. You know, the, this idea that, that, you know, success is really sort of peace of mind. And this idea that um, success can be defined as sort of realizing your potential at a given point in time. Um, that sort of thinking, uh, coupled with um, faith-based principles, changes your perspective. And you get up each day um, recognizing that, um, that what you're pursuing is something much bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And this idea of serving and enriching the lives of others makes such a huge impact in your day-to-day -day routine. Because from the time your feet hit the floor, if you're subscribing to these types of uh, values and principles, um, you approach your job from a perspective of saying, well, how can I help you today? All of my colleagues in meetings, I'm thinking to myself, well, how can I be of service to this person today? That's very different than what the world teaches business leaders to pursue. We tend to focus on, uh, frankly, things that are pretty temporal, right? We think about money and power and titles and 
um, and, and those types of things, and accumulating material blessings. But the truth of the matter is, is that um, once you've had some money, you begin to realize that that's not really going to satisfy your soul. I, I loved uh, Patrick Morley's wonderful quote that it may be that the poor people are the luckiest people because at least they have the hope that if they had money, they'd be happy. Mm -hmm. Once you've come to the sort of conclusion that that's not what's going to satisfy your soul, as a person of faith, it becomes all about relationships. And at the end of the day, um, I know when, uh, when I decide to you know, uh, sort of retire, if that day should ever come, um, it, I won't be thinking back to you know, the second quarter and the shrink uh, you know, of the fourth quarter or what the EBITDA was. I'll be thinking about the relationships and the people that I had an opportunity to serve with. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what matters, and, and that's what a person of faith ought to be thinking about. Well, Dan, I appreciate so much you sharing your time with us today, and I know those that are going to listen to this podcast will be uh, deeply touched and interested in what you had to say, and uh, certainly you are a wonderful representative of the Grazia Dio School and our mission and values as an institution, so uh, we thank you for your time and appreciate you joining us for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Thank you very much, Dean. Belinda, that was certainly an interesting conversation. I'm always struck by how complex any industry really is. Well, and the grocery industry has changed so dramatically in recent years, and the demographics in Southern California have certainly affected that industry. Right. So Dan has a great perspective on that and has also done a lot of writing in the, the service area of business that's been quite interesting as well. So those perspectives were quite valuable for certainly. all of us to hear today. Yeah, certainly. Well, the Dean's Executive Leadership Series continues. Uh, tell us who we can expect to hear from next. Well, we are going into the sports world next in Northern California with Jed York, who is the president and CEO of the San Francisco 49ers. Well, that, that will be a fantastic interview and uh, wonderful to head up north and to visit with some of our alums up there as well. In the meantime, let me invite our listeners to uh, learn more about the Dean's Executive Leadership Series by visiting our website at bschool.pepperdine.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.